Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Space Jams podcast. I am your host, Jim Murphy. And of course, my wonderful co-host, Will Murphy, is with me today. Will, how you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be back. Will, because we have a very special guest today, Will. We have a special guest. His name is Brad Hartwig. Let me tell you a little about, about Brad Hartwig, okay? He's a graduate of the University of Southern California. He's a bachelor's of science in aerospace and aeronautical and astronomical engineering. He was a vehicle engineer at SpaceX for two years and a test pilot and a flight test engineer at Kitty Hawk. And he's with us here today. Brad, how you doing? Doing great, guys. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Jim and Will. Good to, good to be here. Look, uh, one of the other things, Brad just got off a run and he thinks he's better than us and it's true um just because he can run a little further though doesn't mean you know it's, 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 we're gonna make this work okay i'm gonna try to keep my try to keep my ego down and, and make this work um brad we got our first fantastic question of course that i've come up with and it's how did you get interested in space and aeronautics Ooh. Good one. Um, I think I got interested in aerospace pretty early on, back when I was probably, I don't know, like 12 or 13 years old, right around middle school. Um, and I honestly, I just spent so much time outdoors. And I always, um, honestly, I just want, I wanted to fly it was kind of my first, uh, I feel like real connection with, with aerospace was I wanted to get a pilot's license and I started kind of researching what it would take to, you know, build a kind of backyard aircraft and ended up actually trying to build a human powered helicopter in my backyard in high school as part of a uh, international Sikorsky competition. They were sponsoring or there was basically a prize out for the first uh, first team to build a fully human powered helicopter that could get off the ground up to at least 10 feet and stay in the air for about a minute. And I tried building one of these things on my own, just in my backyard. And I was on just a shoestring budget being in high school. Um, so I ended up just, you know, I did a lot of research and um, I, you know, was practicing building these huge wings that had you know, airfoil cross sections to get lift and was trying to make it all as light as possible. So it was looking to kind of advanced composites and seeing what was kind of the state of the art, but also what was within my budget. And, you know, I never, I never got off the ground with the, uh, with my helicopter. Uh, and I ended up, you know, having to go off to, to college before I could uh, completely finish it. But I think that kind of set the stage for me for what I wanted to study at university. And then as soon as I got to USC, um, I came across some of the design teams that the school had. And the one that really caught my attention was USC's Rocket Propulsion Lab. It was a, you know, all student group, all undergrad, and they were working towards being the first student group in the world to send a rocket into space. 
And that was to me like a, you know, a goal that I just thought was, was incredible and I wanted to be a part of it. And it was, uh, was just really impressed with the individuals that were working there. They had a, just this mentality of doing everything in-house, everything, for, you know, from scratch, from, you know, literally um, like even, you know, building the tools to build the rocket. Um, we built an in-house filament winder to wind carbon fiber toe into a minimum diameter um, motor case and airframe. And we had to uh, build an oven to actually bake the rocket to cure the, the uh, carbon resin system. And um, a lot of the technologies we were, um, you know, more or less, uh, you know, coming up with on our own because they'd never been sort of scaled down to the amateur rocketry world. So we were taking like industry practices, uh, but doing it at a smaller scale. Um, and yeah, just tons of trips out to the desert, trying to launch rockets exploded a lot of a lot of rockets in the process um but i got really interested in rocket propulsion while i was there and ended up yeah being the lead propulsion engineer for the team and uh yeah just a couple years after i left that group actually became the first student group to send a rocket to space so finally uh, achieved an almost decade or a little over a decade long goal um so yeah, that was really kind of uh, what tipped me off into the direction of, of space. That's awesome. That's, it's so cool that those opportunities are becoming uh, more and more available, uh, you know, around the world, but also kind of just, you know, in, in general, because a big thing on Space Jams is we're like trying to show people how they can be involved and how they can like get a, like be a part of the, the world of space and everything. And it's really cool that these students are coming together and they're engineers, but it's cool. That these students are coming together to, you know, build rockets and shoot them off in the desert. It's awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, for the longest time, it was just, you know, entire nations funded by their respective governments. It was only entities of that scale that really had any hopes of sending something to space. And, you know, in my life, uh, private space flight has become a, you know, a growing industry with companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Relativity Space. And it was, yeah, I think for us being the first student group to achieve that was, you know, even kind of like another step to show that this is something that really everyone can be a part of. Um, so it was, yeah, very, very rewarding. And yeah, hats off to all the folks that were, you know, working at the USCRPL on that project. But big shout out. Um, yeah. Along those lines. So you're talking about like SpaceX and you're talking about um, Blue Origin and uh, relativity space and everything and the commercial commercial space and the privatization of space. Uh, do you have any like feelings about the commercialization of space? So that's kind of the age we live in. Like, do you see that as a positive or do you see it as a negative? I think the private sector has just, so there's the the individuals that are drawn to that space are extremely passionate about innovation and there is an ability to innovate in the private sector you know an ability to be really lean and nimble that i think is very difficult for governments to do 
I think at the, you know, government level, things become very political. And there is, you know, all these needs to get various contractors involved, you know, from one presidency to the next, agendas can completely change. And it's, uh, it's difficult to kind of gain the momentum sometimes that is required for some of these huge, huge projects. And so I think in a lot of ways, the way that NASA has begun to approach things is NASA has its, um, you know, sort of goals, its agenda that's established by, um, you know, the, the powers that be. And the, the innovation on, you know, the, um, the actual construction and development of, of some of these rockets and spacecraft has been actually kind of left to the private sector um, for, you know, companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin. And I, in my experience, you know, what SpaceX has been able to accomplish, uh, just incredible, incredible feats with, in the scheme of things, fairly small amounts of money and fairly small amounts of, you know, employees. Um, and I just think that it is really kind of the direction that a lot of industries will be uh, making to really continue to push the envelope forward. So I, I think it's going to be, um, you know, NASA is obviously doing some of the most cutting edge science in space and on those frontiers. But I think f as far as, you know, developing transportation systems and, you know, kind of making that technology more robust, I think the private sector is an incredible place for that innovation to be happening. Yeah, definitely. And you, you spent a couple of years at SpaceX. Uh, uh, could you tell us like a little bit about what you did there? Uh, your like specific job and everything? Yeah. So I was a, a vehicle engineer, um, specifically focused on uh, building the Draco rocket engines for Crew Dragon. And I came on in 2016, um, right out of college. And we were, um, Started, we were basically trying to take Cargo Dragon, which was a spacecraft that we'd used uh, for years to do, you know, deliver uh, cargo and experiments to the International Space Station. And we wanted to adapt that vehicle to you know, be able to fly uh, crew, NASA astronauts, as part of the commercial crew program. And so my job was um, basically helping to develop the, the crew variant of the Draco engine, um, as well as uh, basically lead all of the, the manufacturing and, and testing of those engines, all the way from you know, raw material stock to integration into the vehicle. And it ended up being quite a different engine by the time we were done with it from the cargo variant, um, it, in large part just because the uh, scrutiny required to fly astronauts, you know, there's, the stakes are just so, so much higher when there are human lives involved. So I, I, there was maybe you know, two parts that were the same out of a, out of a hundred um, and everything else was either redesigned or you know, we had to change processes in order to show you know, robustness of the design. Um, but it was, yeah, everything from you know, processing, building thrust chamber assemblies and injector assemblies, um, you know, welding components and, and testing those parts in-house and 
installing pressure transducers, you know, temperature detectors, harnessing, uh, actually hot firing those engines out in a, a vacuum chamber in Texas, getting engine data, and then uh, bringing those engines back and um, integrating them into the actual spaceship. Um, so that was, yeah, pretty much the ramp up from initial development through NASA qualification, um, all the way into integration into the first uh, couple vehicles uh, for, for, you know, flight being the demo one mission and the, the demo two mission. Oh, wow. So you had, so the, the rocket or the propulsion systems that you were working on were on the demo one and the demo two missions. Yeah, so they, um, and just to clarify for anyone who's not totally familiar with the, uh, the propulsion system on Crew Dragon, the Draco engines provide the attitude control and the orbital maneuvering for Crew Dragon. So they're basically the end of the line for the propulsion system. Every, all of the propellant tanks, all of the valves, the, the pressurant system, all of that, you know, is working towards getting the propellants, which are monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide, they're hypergols. So they react spontaneously when they touch each other. They don't need any separate ignition source. And so all that work is to get those propellants to react in the, uh, in the Draco engines so that you can get a little bit of impulse um, in order to move the vehicle. So they'll either be pulsed at Six, as little as like 60 milliseconds, you can turn the engine on and shut it down in these really, really precise burns in order to get a very small amount of impulse to the vehicle. And so you would do that to reorient the vehicle, either to point it in a specific direction or to roll it. If you want to do, say, a, a barbecue maneuver to make sure that the vehicle isn't getting too hot or too cold on any one part of, of the spacecraft. And, uh, and then they also are used for orbital maneuvering. So they will burn for much longer periods of time, a couple minutes, up, all the way up to 15 minutes or so at a time in order to raise or lower uh, Crew Dragon's orbit so that you can chase down the International Space Station, actually you know, autonomously dock with the station, um, as well as when you're deorbiting to return home. And, um, so I, yeah, I was responsible for building that initial flight set of engines for the demo one mission. Um, so those engines uh, propelled the Crew Dragon on its maiden voyage up to the International Space Station and then back home. And then um, I did a, quite a bit of part processing for the demo two mission as well before uh, eventually heading out. So yeah, had, had some hardware on both, on both vehicles. It's pretty cool. That's it's super cool to us because the demo two mission was we we call it the beginning of the commercial space age uh, for us. So, like, how does it feel to have something that you worked on, like, almost start off a new era of space? Like, you know, that's just a very cool thing to have happen. Yeah, I think it's um, and it's it's funny we we would joke about how you know, that single flight would in a lot of ways kind of, you know, either validate privatized space flight or, you know, spell its doom for, oh, yeah, for, for sure. years to come. And so we were so, so ecstatic that it, it you know, went without a hitch. Um, 
but it, just the sheer amount of effort from so many people that went into making that mission a success. Um, I think it is, yeah, super, super humbling and is, uh, you know, definitely a, a huge, you know, point of pride for me in my career. Um, but it is also, you know, just, uh, I think in a lot of ways, you know, my efforts there were just a, a drop of water and just an ocean of, you know, tremendous talent and effort that went into that vehicle. Um, but yeah, it definitely to, you know, be an aerospace engineer and have, um, worked on a, a vehicle from development actually to, you know, to flight. Um, I think it's, it, it's honestly, it can be, uh, uh, pretty rare sometimes when you're working in development that your work will fully come to fruition. And so, yeah, to actually have built hardware that, um, you know, made it to space and was on board some pretty historic missions. It definitely, yeah, feels very, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's so cool. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of these, like the development of a lot of these things don't always end up where you want them, but it's really cool that yours did. And it was on such a momentous occasion, really. So that's fantastic. And so after SpaceX, you actually went on to uh, another company called Kitty Hawk. Is that correct? And yes. And my fabulous co-host uh, has taken a great interest into Kitty Hawk as we've done a little research on it and everything. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you did at Kitty Hawk? Yeah. So um, Kitty Hawk is a company that's uh, headed by Sebastian Thrun, who is a um, kind of a giant in the world of artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles um, started Google X and Waymo and some of their, their, their big projects. Um, and so we were working on uh, more or less their, it's kind of like a flying car, but we call them eVTOL. Uh, it's an electric vehicle, all electric that can take off and land vertically like a helicopter and then, you know, transition into uh into forward flight. And my role there was as a, uh, I came on as a flight test engineer and eventually got trained up as a test pilot for that vehicle as well. Um, but my responsibilities were primarily to work with the rest of the engineering teams, both hardware and software. And uh, we would come up with these flight test campaigns where we would be, um, you know, testing out new software, trying to make the vehicle safer, pushing the envelope, seeing, you know, where uh, the vehicle's limitations were, adding instrumentation. So, you know, adding radar, LIDAR, ultrasound, like, you know, all these uh, different systems and testing, um, basically trying to see where things break. Um, so when you have, you know, lots of different sensors all trying to tell you how high you are, how fast you're going, trying to interpret this rapidly evolving environment that the vehicle is going through. And you are you know, trying to basically read that data, assign it sort of basically a fidelity value, and then have more or less kind of a voting architecture, trying to take in all of this data and process it to create reasonable state estimations so that the flight computer knows exactly where the vehicle is and so that ultimately the pilot knows that he's uh, you know, 
he or she is in a, a safe spot and can keep flying. Um, but yeah, so that would involve a lot of uh, flight tests. A lot of it was because we equipped the vehicle um, from the get-go with the ability to be remotely controlled. Um, a lot of that would be done remotely. We do remote flight test. Um, we built out a pretty, pretty awesome uh, computer flight simulator so that we could run a, you know, thousands of flight scenarios in simulation prior to actually flying it in real life. And that allowed us to cut back a ton on the risk to both aircraft and, and personnel when we were actually testing the vehicle. And then, you know, when we felt really strongly about a uh, vehicle hardware and software configuration and it put it through all these um, you know, remote flight tests, then we'd step into um, human, you know, operated flight test where um, I would hop on or one of our other test pilots and we would, again, go through the motions and check off test points and verify the envelope for the aircraft. And uh, our goal with that vehicle was really trying to get it so that anyone could come you know, could come basically, we're going to run a service set where people could come to us and learn to fly one of these aircraft in, you know, 20 to 30 minutes mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the dozens of hours it normally takes to get a private pilot's license. And in order to do that, it required having the flight computer do a lot more of the flying so that the pilot or the operator um, could focus on a much smaller number of tasks. And it was a, uh, yeah, really incredible project to figure out how can we take, you know, travel in this three-dimensional space and simplify it so much that you could reasonably learn to fly this thing in 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came, you know, there's some really interesting engineering problems associated with that. Um, but yeah, again, really just incredible experience and, and team. And so are these things that you're, the, the vehicles themselves that you're making, the VTOL suggests you know, vertical takeoff and landing. Um, so are they like helicopters? Are they like planes or like drones? Like what do they look like? It is, yeah, it's a great question. And I, in a lot of ways, I mean, people continue to come out with new concepts uh, every week on kind of what these things should look like. And it's a very nebulous, uh, both it's a very nebulous regulatory environment. The FAA is still in a lot of ways trying to figure out how to handle this kind of new classification of aircraft. Um, but they, because yeah, there's such a variety of designs out there. We, we were working on primarily two designs, one being the flyer aircraft, which is in a lot of ways kind of a scaled up drone. It looks sort of like a flying jet ski with um, 10 propellers, basically five pairs of contra rotating propellers that um, would give you, you know, lift. Um, and then it would effortlessly be able to translate in a forward flight like a drone and get a little bit of translational lift, um, you know, as you're as you're picking up speed. And some of the, the booms had a little bit of a airfoil shape to also provide a little bit of lift. Um, what was cool about that vehicle is we operated it fairly close to the ground, 
so that you got a little added bonus of uh, something called ground effect, where the uh, you're close enough to the ground that the vortices that you develop at the tips of your propellers don't have enough room to fully develop. And uh, usually those, those tip vortices are a, a big source of inefficiency because you have high pressure under the propeller that wants to spill over onto the top of the propeller. When you operate closer to the ground, it, um, can, it kind of uh, reduces some of the development of those vortices. Um, but that was, yeah, the flyer vehicle is basically a scaled up drone with, you know, just way more uh, kind of redundant sensors and, and flight computers and, and larger batteries. And then the other vehicle is the heaviside vehicle, which is, uh, it's more, it, kind of, it looks more almost like a scaled down glider. That is, so it's more of a kind of traditional looking aircraft but it has a series of propellers along the trailing edge of the wing. And those point down to pick the vehicle up in conjunction with um, some propellers that are canard mounted up towards the nose. So it picks the vehicle up and then those propulsors actually articulate to slowly transition the aircraft forward. And you can uh, you know, throttle down those propellers once you're in a forward flight but that vehicle, you're getting a lot more lift from the wing. So it's, it's a lot more efficient in forward flight. And it's, uh, yeah, it's able to go very fast and extremely quiet. Um, and it's, uh, and that's, you know, the vehicle that Kitty Hawk is now focusing on. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see if a lot of these EV toll companies start to kind of converge on a design or, if we continue to see the great, you know, variety of concepts that are out there today, mm. but yeah, it's going to be a very, you know, interesting industry to follow as well. I got a, I got a few questions about that. One, one kind of specific to these projects and one more big picture, I guess, uh, specific. So in my reading about, uh, well, mostly heavy side, um, they talked about the advantage of being able to do, like the majority of testing hours with remote access to the vehicle, essentially. Was that also true of flyer or was that all simulations and then in-person flight? Yeah, we utilized the remote flying capacities of the vehicle a, a ton. So it's, um, we would always, there, we had kind of a release sequence every time we updated software or had a change in hardware vehicle configuration where we would run it through uh, you'd merge those software branches into a master branch and you would walk through all of these different flight test scenarios in the simulation just to make sure nothing really weird or catastrophic happened. You know, like the, the, either the vehicle couldn't take off or that the vehicle all of a sudden thought down was up and up was down. Um, you know, some, it just helps you get rid of some of these kind of big, big problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we could also run it through something called a hill, which is where you uh, have hardware in the loop. So you have basically like a test bed with uh, be it actuators or motors, uh, speed controllers. You have hardware that you can make sure when you run the software, everything comes on as you expect it to. Motors spin up, motors spin down. And um, once all of that work was done, then we could 
step into remote flight testing. And we spent a majority of our flying hours doing remote flight testing. Um, it is just, uh, you know, having that, that capability is, is incredible because you can really push the envelope of the aircraft in a way that would not be safe if you had an onboard test pilot. Yeah. And so you can do, you know, everything from pushing the envelope, going to speeds that you've never tried before going to, you know, combinations of, of, you know, speed and pilot induced oscillations where you try and get a, a um, you know, a dynamic instability in the aircraft and you can really kind of, you know, push the limits of, of the vehicle in ways that you're more or less trying to see what will break. And when you're a test pilot on board the aircraft, it has to be a lot more rigid and you are, um, you know, you're trying to make the test as safe as possible for the onboard test pilot. So you want to very incrementally step over kind of the previously explored envelope because you uh, need to be able to recover it really quickly. And, you know, with uh, remote test pilots, we were able to develop a, a, you know, awesome crash test campaign where we fully instrument the vehicle with uh, accelerometers and, and a dummy and get, um, you know, a full kind of envelope of, of the G, G loads that a pilot would experience. And um, yeah, you can really explore that envelope prior to putting a test pilot in so that when the test pilot does, you know, hop in and get behind the controls, you have you know a pretty good feeling that there uh, you know there's some layers of safety that you've already walked through to be there. Um, so from a development standpoint, it's just an awesome feedback loop. You can iterate on on the development of an aircraft extremely quickly. Yeah. And so for for I mean I didn't know this before I did any reading about it. When you say envelope, when you say push the envelope, you mean like the envelope is there's a technical definition for what the envelope of an aircraft is. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Basically, the um, the operating conditions that the aircraft is uh, is designed to withstand, and when you are, um, it, you know, it could be everything from a speed and altitude combination. Like maybe you're um, you've limited yourself to, you know, eighty miles per hour at you know a thirty foot altitude, just as an example. You've never gone faster that, than that at that altitude. Um, you know, usually you'd be at much bigger scales where air density changes quite a bit as you go up. And, uh, you know, if you've never gone over, you know, say, uh, you know, 200 miles per hour at 10,000 feet, um, then when you do go either above that altitude at that speed or you go, you know, faster at that same altitude, you're expanding the kind of region of operation that that aircraft has demonstrated. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of what that always comes back to is when you're developing a new aircraft, you want to have fully explored what the aircraft is able to do, you know, prior to more or less releasing it into the market um, because you don't want a, you know, a pilot civilian or military to be the first one to explore 
some operating regime. Yeah. Um, you want to have tested everything in flight tester and the development of the aircraft. So you know exactly how to define how the, op the, the aircraft should be operated for, uh, for safe operation. Hmm. Well, so then I guess big picture, what I'm wondering about is like your, your journey from uh, SpaceX, or actually, I guess, experiences in college with the, the propulsion laboratory to SpaceX to Kitty Hawk. Like, how do you, how do you feel about that transition? Obviously, you went, SpaceX is very space involved, right? And then Kitty Hawk is more on Earth, like, you know, uh, like, yeah, in an atmosphere, right? How do you, what, what's your feeling on that? What's more important to you, I guess? I think they both have very interesting challenges about them. And I, I mean, we had at USC a, a astronautical engineering program that just focused on space. And I chose the aerospace engineering program, which dabbled both in space and in, um, you know, spacecraft and aircraft design. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they, they have, they both have really unique challenges. And I, I, um, I, I can't say I'm totally a space person or totally an aircraft person. I love, I think they're both really, uh, really incredible. Um, a lot of the challenges of space flight are in getting out of the atmosphere, yeah. getting off the ground. And at USC's rocket propulsion lab, we were using a single stage solid rocket, you know, solid, um, solid rocket motor to uh to power this vehicle past the the carmen line which is the internationally recognized boundary of space and with a um with a solid rocket you end up having to accelerate really quickly so our motor burned for about 15 seconds and we got up to about Mach 6 or six times the speed of sound at an altitude of about 30,000 feet when the motor shut down. And so when you're going that fast, the, the atmosphere is just this huge, huge obstacle. You're basically trying to punch through the atmosphere. And what ends up happening is um, you have, you know, in addition to all the drag that that's creating on the vehicle, all of that air is going to stagnate at all of the leading edges of of your vehicle so what it basically means is you know if if temperature is defined as the average like kinetic energy of these air molecules you can imagine that as this rocket is coming by at at mach 6 you have air molecules that are with respect to the vehicle moving at mach 6 and stagnating or going from Mach 6 to essentially zero, like instantaneously along that leading edge. No. So you can imagine that the kinetic energy of those air molecules at that leading edge or at the tip of that rocket are, are tremendous. So you have all of this um, you know, kinetic energy that's being converted immediately into thermal energy. And you end up getting temperatures that exceed several thousands of degrees Fahrenheit at those surfaces. 
And so all of those surfaces we would have to build out of special composite materials like, a, you know, a linen phenolic, um, which, which actually ablate, they slowly erode away under those temperatures because um, very few materials can actually withstand those temperatures. And uh, so it's interesting that some of our more complex problems in dealing with the development of rockets at the USC Rocket Propulsion Lab, um, a lot of them were actually challenges directly brought on by the fact that we had to operate in the atmosphere, even if it's only for that 15 second envelope, yeah. that, you know, that 15 second envelope is where all the bad stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so we had a lot of rockets that would explode just mere seconds after mm. takeoff. And uh, it is, you know, it's devastating because you pour like thousands of person hours into one of these vehicles and only to see it explode just a couple seconds after takeoff. Yeah. But I mean, once you uh, get out of the atmosphere, a lot of the stresses actually um, decrease substantially. So I, th I think the disciplines, I mean, you know, space flight evolved out of, uh, you know, atmospheric flight. And in a lot of ways, I almost see it as um, they're, they're mutually, um, you know, they, they inform each other kind of mutually. Um, you know, when we uh, try to land a spacecraft on Mars, the atmosphere is an extremely unique challenge for those aircraft, for the, uh, the spacecraft during reentry because you have not enough air to use it as your, you know, your braking method. Mm -hmm. um, you, you'll use it a little bit to slow the vehicle down, but at the end of the day, you're going to need to use some kind of retro propulsion where you're firing your thrusters in the direction that you're, you're traveling or falling to slow the vehicle down. So you have these yeah, complex problems of aerodynamic heating with, you know, having to use retro propulsion. You can use maybe like drogue shoots or shoots to some extent. Um, but it is, uh, yeah, there's just so many unique challenges depending on what types of environments you're going to be operating in. And so I think I'll, I'll continue to be interested in both for a long time. I think, like, I hope you'll forgive me for getting philosophical here, but I'm sure you're aware of it. Like in my mind right now, you kind of straddle the Carmen line, literally like with your career, like the envelope of everything you're working on in atmospheric flight is limited by the envelope of, you know, rocket flight, rocketry, right? Like everything in rockets wants to get outside that line and everything in a plane flies on earth needs to stay below that line, essentially, you know? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think the, the more I learn, the more I kind of see everything as very interconnected. Um, it, you know, a lot of folks, that, a lot of astronauts that have actually, you know, gone to the space station, come back with a, a very um, deep kind of sense of, of needing to protect the planet almost, you know, come back uh, environmentalists because you see just how special like Earth is um, and how truly thin our atmosphere is. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty, pretty cool to see how everything kind of comes full circle 
and how sort of, yeah, interconnected everything is. Hmm. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, you talked about a little bit <clears throat> about Mars there. And when it comes to Mars, like obviously Elon Musk is a big Mars guy. Uh, he's a big colonizing guy, big exploration guy. Uh, do you have any, like, are you excited about the exploration and the possible colonization of Mars? Is that something you were like into when you were at SpaceX and continue to be, or is it kind of just like, eh, I'm cool here on earth with my Jetsons type aircraft? <laughs> oh man. I think, um, I think a lot of us that get into aerospace are, are really excited about the exploration side of things. Um, even all the way, you know, when I was in, uh, USC's rocket lab, we, um, had, you know, heard rumors that, uh, they were already starting some initial concept work for the, uh, Mars colonization transport system, you know, whatever it was, uh, named at the time. And that, fueled a lot of us that were working in that lab um we were yeah very very excited that within our lifetime we would be you know going to other worlds and having more of a sustained presence on both the moon and mars um i think with starship and the big falcon rocket they're making a lot of really cool design decisions that are allowing a, a flexibility that you know we've never seen in a spacecraft before um and i think it is just really cool it's, it's a you know we're going to be seeing entire new industries and economies that revolve around you know humans in space and on other on other planets um so i think yeah I, i'm very excited about the exploration aspect and also very excited about i think in general just the opportunities that it will um, open up for all of us that you know kind of grew up dreaming of going to space one day um so i yeah i think it's it's going to be pretty incredible to to watch all as, as all that unfolds and you talk about like growing up dreaming about wanting to go to space and you know you're an engineer and you're a test pilot like do you have any like desire to go to space? You know, to say that there's any like direct line to space is from the astronauts we've talked to, it's, there is none. It's, it's all, it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot, little bit of luck. Well, they say it's a lot of luck also kind of. Um, but if you could go to space, you know, like, would you go or you have any plans to kind of like maybe go further into that, like, you know, astronaut world possibly? You know, I think, um, I, Short answer is, yeah, I would love the opportunity to to go to space at some point. Um, I think probably like the astronauts you've interviewed previously, there's a, um, there is definitely a good amount of luck and an incredible amount of hard work just to get the qualifications that, you know, NASA views as being sort of promising for a good astronaut candidate. Um, the most recent class had some 18,000 people apply for a class of 12 astronauts. And, you know, you look at these individuals and, and their resumes look like they've had three people like racking up credentials for them as they live. Um, you know, one is a, a Navy SEAL, Harvard doctor, now an astronaut. <laughs> now there is a you know, as a, a professor at MIT, 
but was also, you know, a PhD from, from Berkeley, had tremendous, you know, awesome search and rescue experience and had, uh, had climbed a, a couple huge mountains and a lot of, uh, you know, test pilots that come out of the Air Force and Navy that are, uh, you know, the best pilots we have in the country. Um, but there's, it, it's, I think, kind of crazy when you realize that there are actually lots of those people that are applying and that even having that crazy of, of a resume is, is uh, you know, by no means a, a shoe-in. Um, yeah, in, in some respects, it's, um, yeah, I think there is a, a little bit of luck. But I think, you know, in general, I, I would love to be an astronaut one day, um, whether it's with NASA or whether it's on a more, you know, commercial adventure as a, you know, be it a tourist, be it as a, uh, uh, you know, an industry as that hopefully opens up more. But I think a lot of the work that SpaceX and other companies are doing to developing, you know, these larger rockets, I'm hoping a lot more opportunities open up for, uh, yeah, for everyone who wants to go to space to be able to go. So. Are you telling me that when I apply, uh, that, that they're going to look at my Jersey Mike subs experience and my podcast hosting, and they're going to toss me off to the side. I mean, you don't think that's enough to get, to get up there. I think it's all about how you pitch it. So yeah. for Jersey Mike's, you were, uh, you know, you were a sub integration engineer that's responsible it. for, that's it. you know, single-handedly implementing, you know, the, uh, tomato, lettuce, condiments layering. Yes. And, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I they'd be, I think they'd be crazy not to. I think they would be you. crazy not to. Also, yeah, you're 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 constructing composite materials that are that are the pinnacle of you know consumers. Yeah, biocomposite materials. Yeah, that's even better. Yeah, and that you know what, Chris Chris Cassie just came down from the ISS and he talked about one of the things he missed is that you know there's no there's no kitchen up there you know and why, I mean. <laughs> The first restaurant in space could be Jersey Mike subs and put me up there. Okay. I mean, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Give it a chance, I think, NASA. Give it a chance, NASA. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think you're a shoe in Jim. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> me too. Me too. Oh gosh. Hey, look, all the tough questions are over. So, you know, you can breathe, you can let your hair down. It's all good. It's all easy from here because from here we just have, you know, the fun stuff where we talk a little bit about science fiction what excites you about space and everything, even though I think we already got that from you, but we'll start with, with a, with a pure favorite of ours is we're big science fiction people around here. Do you have a favorite science fiction book? Do you have a favorite book or something that, you know, it doesn't have to be science fiction, but we love reading around here and we love to hear people's opinions. Oh man. I huge, huge fan of, uh, I mean, I think Hollywood in general has been on a little bit of a space kick for a bit now. Um, so definitely have gone, you know, all the, the premieres of like, you know, Interstellar, The Martian, um, loved the book, The Martian. They, you know, go into a lot more detail than they even could in the movie. And I think it was, uh, one of the more, you know, kind of like scientific or sort of engineering accurate, uh, pieces. I think Andy Ware did a ton of research while, uh, you know, putting that book together, which is super incredible. Um, outside of that, man, I, I think, um, there's so many that even, even movies like, um, 
trying to think what the uh not annihilate annihilation was also good but i think in general i just i, I love the sci-fi genre I'm trying to give some some good books that i've that i've picked up on recently i think it's funny that you mentioned the martian actually it's not funny because every, like the three of like the six or i don't know how many people we've had on the show everybody mentions the martian and they all talk about how what a great job andy weir did and with the technical side and i think it's great how you know we interview people from the technical world of space really and they all they all love that part they love that technical side and when i read it like i'm a history major and i'm like reading this i'm like i don't really know what some of these like physics terms mean or what he's talking about but i love it because i don't understand it and i think it's super cool that you all enjoy it yeah they uh it one it you know gives a a sort of hat tip to just the jack of all trades nature of some of those astronauts i mean you see um so Mark Watney, he's a, a botanist, but he's also, you know, figuring out how to essentially distill water out of, uh, you know, using a, a catalyst mm -hmm. and a hydrazine yeah, propellant. And um, it, yeah, it's just, uh, it's cool to kind of see that really portrayed. And there were probably a couple scenes where you're like, okay, I, like maybe you couldn't like take your glove off and use that as a, a uh, propulsion system to you know make that connecting flight to the spacecraft but um i i think yeah probably coming at it from a technical perspective most sci-fi you i won't even you know intend to be doing it but you're kind of like processing it in your head like is that possible is that like totally a you know leap of faith to say that that could be done um but yeah i mean i remember even back to like Wallace and Gromit and their grand adventure, their trip to the moon. And they go, uh, they build a rocket in their garage and go have a, a picnic with cheese on the moon. And man, I, I love all those, those episodes of like a, a, you know, a space version of a, of a show that you normally watch. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for your Wallace and Gromit response because that is the weirdest response we've ever had to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, you got to go back and watch the scene where they're building the rocket. It's it's extremely accurate. And yeah, I sure. just think, you know, they do. Yeah. That's how, how we really did everything at SpaceX. We just watched <laughs> that and, and went from there. <laughs> the the how-to video. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so along with like science fiction and everything, do you think like science fiction has an impact on like the real world space exploration? Or do you think it's just like, it's just stories? I think absolutely. I, uh, I think one, it kind of speaks to a lot of our imaginations, both, you know, growing up and, and even well into adulthood. Um, it, you know, sparks our curiosity pretty early on and, and forms us kind of what we want to do from a career standpoint. Um, and I got even like a little uh, rocket here. That's, it's kind of like a Tintin rocket, which, you know, Elon was um, very um, intent early on, on making Starship as close of a resemblance as possible to the Tintin rocket. Hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't, it, I think he got a lot of his inspiration to pursue the dreams that he has from the science fiction that he read growing up. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of us kind of you know, end up going down a, a path of engineering or science because of, you know, ex exploits that we've read in, in books or seen in movies. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, we we feel the same way. Like, and Elon, he he talks about like he has a whole like ten books you should read or something, and they go from like, you know, Robert Heinlein's The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress, and he tells you to read The Lord of the Rings, and I love The Lord of the Rings. Like, I think The Lord of the Rings is like a space. It's like a space book for me. It's just about like an exploration. So I I love talking about Lord of the Rings, and I'll reread them and read them again. Yes, uh, it's awesome. But you talk about like things that we did and read and watched as kids. Um, and I think that's like our, our last question for you is how do we get the younger generation excited about space? How do we get people, uh, how do we inspire people? Is it through science fiction? Are there other ways we can do it? Like how, how would you go about it? I think there's, I mean, there's certainly a lot of ways. I think having more outreach initiatives where, you know, you have folks that are in STEM industries coming and speaking to, to kids and getting them excited about or, you know, considering a career in uh, science and engineering when they maybe otherwise wouldn't. But I also think, you know, with, uh, with SpaceX and some of these other, you know, private space companies starting to do launches more and more frequently, I think, you know, going to a launch and seeing a launch in person and, and seeing it with your own eyes and, and hearing that and, you know, feeling that kind of pressure wave, you know, just kind of zip through you as you see this, uh, you know, rocket slowly kind of crawl up into the atmosphere out of the launch pad. Um, I think it's, it's a experience that's hard to replace with, uh, with science fiction. And I, I would certainly encourage everyone to go, you know, see a, a live rocket launch at some point. But I think a lot of what, you know, these, um, these companies are doing, like SpaceX and Blue Origin, they're trying to get the public excited, you know, about space, whether it be with space tourism or whether it be to, you know, as part of NASA contracts to get us back to the moon and Mars. Um, I, you know, I think... Uh, for me, I've always been a very tactile person where I learn through, you know, through touching, through building, through taking stuff apart. And, um, and I think, yeah, whether it's museums, whether it's, you know, trying to actually get a tour at SpaceX um, or going and, you know, seeing a, a rocket launch in person. Uh, I mean, I can't think of a better way to, you know, get kids excited about what they're seeing. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, you, Will and I, there's like a little picture of us on uh, our Instagram account. It's us at the shuttle launch. We were at a, uh, I actually forget which shuttle it is. I believe it was um, Discovery. But it was like the last shuttle launch they were doing. And uh, we went down to see that. And it's just all of us, you know, dumbfounded, you know, sitting on a car looking at this ball of light going in the sky. And I remember the noise and I remember how bright it was. And that definitely like had a huge impact on me, particularly when it comes to like my interest. And so I think that you have a, like a great point about that and how that, you know, that inspiration just from seeing it, seeing is believing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Will, do we have any final thoughts? I just, I was, when you mentioned that uh, Blue Origin, Virgin, or I don't know if you mentioned Virgin Galactic, but like we've talked about that that exact idea, like space tourism, that's just getting people, getting people excited about it. Like not, not engineers, not STEM people, just people. I think it's, it's big, it's important. 
Yeah. 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 No, they're looking. SpaceX is looking at sending Tom Cruise up to <laughs> oh space in a Cree Dragon. Yeah. Really. Absolutely. Yeah, they're uh, looking to actually, you know, film some scenes in space, and uh, I, I think, uh, I think Hollywood has a, a huge ability to inspire people as well and yeah i think movies like the martian and interstellar um you know having more movies like that as well get kids uh you know really thinking about what's next yeah well i'll be honest um i'm i'm hoping that you know as you continue your journey brad that you do get that man-powered helicopter off the ground eventually <laughs> because I'd really love to see you pedaling away and getting it going and everything. And that's all I can think about this whole time is that I can't wait for that to happen. That's the future. Let's get rid of our bicycles. That's all it is. Human-powered helicopter. After you're an astronaut, that's what you're going to come down and you're going to be like, everyone's going to be like, oh my God, what was that experience like? And you're going to be like, it doesn't mean anything to me. Pails and get this helicopter off the ground. Exactly. But Brad, it was so awesome to have you here today. It was great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I mean, we can be a lot. I will is, you know, so spectacular to look at. I'm sure it was tough for you to like, talk through that whole situation. Um, for everybody out there, thank you for listening. Please feel free to, uh, you know, subscribe and, uh, you know, maybe be a donor, you know, a dollar a month, maybe, you know, help my boy, Will and I, you know, not, you know, die. You know, I'm working at Jersey Mike's, but it ain't enough, people. You know, it's like tips. Okay. <laughs> uh, follow us on Instagram at Space Champs, and you know, everybody keep looking up. Right, Brad. It was great talking to you. Hey, great being here. Great chat with you guys. And Will, always an see honor. you around. There we go. Keep looking up. <laughs>